Some of you have puzzled looks on your face like, uh, is this the new senior high room? For those of you who don't know, that's where I spend most of my time is with the senior high group. Uh, no, they, uh, they sent me up here because adults say, if you can teach teenagers, you can teach anybody. Well, guess what the senior hires say? If you can teach adults, Terry, then you can teach us. So you go learn and teach adults, and then you can come and teach us. Well, the, the passage that, that David uh, left for me to, to preach on this morning reminds me of a, of a story I heard a couple of weeks ago. And it revolves around a miner and a cowboy in an old western town. And in the middle of the town is a typical saloon, and the miner is standing up next to the saloon, or to the bar in the saloon, sipping his sarsaparilla. And along comes up this big, burly cowboy. He's had more than just some sarsaparilla. He says, hey, miner, you know how to dance? The miner looks up to him and says, no. And he says, well, you're going to learn. As soon as I pull these guns out, you better start dancing. And he pulls out his guns and he starts shooting and the, cow, the miners start popping and, and dancing, doing a quick two-step. And so he's all out of ammunition, the cowboy is, and the miner leaves the saloon and he comes back in about five minutes with a shotgun. And he walks up to the cowboy and he says, Hey, cowboy, you ever kiss a donkey? <laughs> and the cowboy says, no, but I always wanted to. <laughs> For those of you who are familiar with uh, Acts 9:32-43, you understand uh, my feeling uh, of relating to the cowboy. Uh, for those of you who don't know what's there, that's okay. No one else does either. It's a little-known passage, but uh, David had heard of my. Uh, storytelling ability, I think, from my mother that uh, I acquired as a teenager. As a matter of fact, that's an essential requirement. If you're going to make it through the teenage years, you've got to be able to tell stories, and good ones. Some of you are nodding. Either you've told them or you've heard them, one of the two. So we'll see if I can uh, tell a good story this morning. In Acts, we've been covering mostly the life of Peter, or Luke has been telling us mostly about the life of Peter so far in Acts, with the exception of uh, chapter 6 and 7, where um, he, we learn about Stephen, Stephen's martyrdom, his service, and then his, his death. And then we come to Acts 9, and we see the conversion of Saul. And now Peter is, uh, Luke picks up the story with uh, Peter, who had been Previous to this time, he had been with John. If you remember back in Luke chapter 8, he'd been with John in Samaria, checking out the work that the Holy Spirit had done. And uh, he now is, is moving on, checking out other parts uh, of the area around Jerusalem as the gospel spreads out. And it was very easy for the uh, people to accept that, or at least for Peter to accept, that the gospel would come to him in Jerusalem and and to the people there because they were near and dear to the Lord's heart. But for the gospel to go to the Sumerians where Philip had been was a little bit harder for them to accept. The Samaritans were a, a horse of an entirely different color. They weren't uh, completely Jewish, but once the Lord broke through to those maturing apostles, they were able to see that God was going to uh, bless them 
take the word in ways that they had never imagined. So now we pick up the story. As it left off in uh, 31, we see that, uh, that the church was growing in Judea and Galilee and Samaria and enjoying peace. And then Luke quickly moves uh, back to Peter in verse 32. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while they were with them, while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. Now you all understand why I've been dying to preach this passage to you this morning. Seems like it's just jam-packed full of things. And if your mind's like mine, you're wondering, what is this passage doing here in Scripture? I mean, how did it get canonized? with the rest of the book of Acts. What could Luke possibly have in mind in telling these two stories? Well, I think there are some legitimate answers to those questions, and we'll, we'll look at those in a few minutes. But I think first, before we start feasting on that dessert, we don't want to bypass the joy and nutrition of the main meal. So we want to take a look and see, is there anything by chance in here that would relate to us this morning. So let's go back to verse 32 and start from the beginning, where Peter is traveling through all the parts uh, of Judea. And Peter, as a, a pillar of the church, came down from Jerusalem. And now everything is down from Jerusalem, geographically and spiritually in Israel. You need to understand that, that uh, Jerusalem sits high in its elevation, and it sits high as the spiritual capital. For the Jews, it's their national spot and their spiritual spot. And whenever somebody went to Jerusalem, they always went up. didn't matter if you were on Mount Everest, you went up to Jerusalem. And for those who came from Jerusalem, it didn't matter where they were going, they always went down. So, Peter is coming down from Jerusalem, and he comes to the saints at Lydda. Now, we know from uh, Pentecost, as well as in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 8, that Luke tells us that there was a persecution 
and the Christians spread out. They spread out from Jerusalem. God had a, a gentle way of kicking them out the door so that the gospel would spread. And some of them probably landed down in Lydda. And I don't think it's any mistake that God sent Paul down to Lydda. It's about 25 miles southeast from Jerusalem and about 12 miles southwest from Joppa. And I had previously thought of uh, this place to be fairly insignificant, but it's in the plain of Sharon, and if you have a map in your Bible, you can look now, if you want to look now, or you can look later. But the plain of Sharon is a broad plain that, that comes up the west side of Israel from the coast, about 25, 20, 25 miles in, and comes all the way from Lydda, goes all the way up to, to Mount Carmel, a very broad area. And Lydda is at the crossroads between the Joppa-Jerusalem Highway, which was a very significant highway in those days, and also the Egypt-Syrian Highway. So it's a cosmopolitan area. It's not just a little dot on your map. There are quite a few folks who live there, and they're not just all Jews. Although this was a Philistine area prior to this time, it is now a Jewish stronghold. So we begin to get the picture of why Peter might need to come down from Jerusalem and offer some encouragement to these folks. And it struck me that that's a really good principle, a really good idea of what's taking place here. That Peter's coming from the home church of Jerusalem to offer encouragement. And at Donami, you know, we here at Cole seem to be doing the same thing. We have a strong, healthy, loving fellowship, and we have been asked at times to help other churches in this region. As a matter of fact, Wayne Friedman and Chris Rudell have gone uh, up to Riggins and to Donnelly to help out with some folks in planning Sunday school and training Sunday school teachers. Uh, David Roper and Brian Fisher have uh, done some teaching at some pastors' conferences to help out pastors who uh, want some further input and education. And we here at Cole need to remember that we need to use our resources that God has given us in this body to help out the rest of the body, at least in the state of Idaho, and, and maybe even beyond that. And so that's what Peter is doing here. He's on a mission to really encourage the saints here at Lydda. And in verse 33, there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. Now what we have here is just a thumbnail sketch that Luke gives us of what really took place. I'm sure there was a little bit more around this incident than what we read in, in those two verses. Peter came down to Lydda. He fellowshiped with the saints there for a few days. While he was there, perhaps came to his attention that there was a man who had been paralyzed. Some think it was a believer. Some aren't sure. The text doesn't tell us where he stood with the Lord. But that evidently Peter noticed or perceive that uh, he could heal this person. He had done some healing before. God had worked through him in that way. And here was another opportunity. And so uh, he comes up to Aeneas, and as the text says, he says a few words to him, letting us know that it's Jesus Christ who does the healing. And immediately he is raised up, and he is healed. And the people there are, they're kind of rubbing their eyes and, they're cleaning out their glasses. and What's going on here? This man was paralyzed for eight years. 
I mean, we saw it. Legitimately, this guy was a cripple. People had to carry him around. People had to feed him. Do all kinds of things for him. And yet all of a sudden, this man Peter comes to town, and he's healed. Well, the first thing that strikes me is that this is a good picture of what the Lord would like us to be. Totally dependent upon him. This man Aeneas was paralyzed, and the only way to be healed was totally dependent upon him. If you were paralytic, certainly you would want to be healed, just as Aeneas was. That's not unusual. But God wants us to be dependent on him and independent, or not dependent upon other people. He does not want us to be independent of one another because we need one another. But he foremost wants us to be dependent upon him so that we're not cripplingly dependent upon other people. And for this man, a marvelous thing had taken place. He was no longer in the need of other people to pick him up, move him around, feed him, clothe him, because Jesus Christ had healed him and made him a new person. And even though the event itself seems to be rather miraculous, I don't think the most important thing here is that Aeneas was healed or that Peter performed a miracle through the power of Jesus Christ. That's not unusual. The power of God is amazing in what it can do. But the real miracle that takes place here is in verse 34. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. That is the miracle of what takes place at Lydda. People saw the power of Jesus Christ, and they turned to the Lord. And it's worth noting that Luke uses the word turn here as a term that means to make a beeline direction or to change and to focus your interest on a particular point. And he couples that with the term Lord. He doesn't use the term Jesus. He doesn't use the term Christ. He doesn't use the term Messiah. He uses the term Lord, which is not uncommon for Luke to use in the book of Acts when talking about Jesus. But it's interesting to begin to speculate what was going through their minds. They were turning to the Lord, the person who controls all of the universe, and to them it was significant, individually and personally, that Jesus Christ was Lord. They turned and put their focus there. And as I began to think about that, I thought, you know, that is the real miracle. Not only that a lot of people came, and I don't know whether uh, all means all, or whether all means a whole lot. I conferred with some people living and some who are dead as to what this was meant, and I could not arrive at a definite conclusion. But any way you sliced it, it was a whole lot of people who came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. And so, as I thought about that, what does that mean to me? I began to get a little uncomfortable. And I began to realize that whether I like it or not, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I may not acknowledge that fact. I may choose to live apart from that fact. But it doesn't change the fact any that he is Lord. It's like gravity. You can choose to live with it or against it. It's easier to live with it 
But to choose to live against it doesn't alter the fact of it at all. And so if Jesus Christ is my Lord, that means I need to be obedient to him. Not just recognize him intellectually, but morally and spiritually. I need to realize that if he's Lord, that demands my obedience to him. That demands my submission to him. That demands my all. The very reason that we're all here this morning, hopefully, is to worship God. And to say in our hearts, amen to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, it just so happened while this magnificent revival was taking place in Lydda, about 10, 12 miles to the west, in Joppa, another, another event was transpiring. Now in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. And this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. The quality of Tabitha's life is laid out for us in this sentence in two words. Kindness and charity. And if you're into marking your Bibles, circle them, write over the letters, whatever. But those two words are important. Luke picks out those two words to describe Tabitha. Kindness and charity. Now, what is kindness? That unique ability to meet another person's need to promote that person's well-being. Unique ability to meet another person's need to promote that person's well-being. It's that uh, grace to say and do the right thing at the right time, whether it's over the phone, passing in the hallway, through a card, leaning over the kitchen counter at home, as you come through the door at the end of the day, as you kneel down to become child-sized, it's that ability to say the right thing or to do the right thing. To give help when the help is out or if there's no help there at all. To meet the need that needs to be met at home, office, school, across the fence, down the road, wherever. That's what kindness is. You see, Tabitha had her eye out for people. The lens of her eye was focused on other people. Not on herself, but on others. And who were those people that she had most in focus? Well, the text gives us a good clue. One were widows, and the other were poor, the poor of her society. You say, how do you know it was the poor of her society? Well, the word charity gives it away, because charity literally means here giving alms to the poor. Tabitha was caught up with the idea of helping out the poor in, in her society, in her sphere. She had a real heart for the poor. And how do I know that she had a heart for the poor? Two reasons. First, God has a heart for the poor. The Bible tells us that, that God really has a heart for the poor people, those who are there by accident or some other way than just being lazy. He has a real heart for them. And the second reason is that Tabitha had a heart for God. So you put those two together and you find out that she has a real heart for the poor people. And let me say here that it is not a sin to be poor 
if you're not lazy or irresponsible. But it is a sin for us to look down upon poor people, to deny poor people the help that they need. And I don't know where your heart is with respect to the poor this morning, but I know where mine is. As a matter of fact, as I studied this passage, my comfort zone was greatly disturbed. And you may all not realize it this morning, but uh, any preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So I don't know how comfortable you're feeling this morning, whether you're snuggled into that chair or not, but maybe by the end of this morning you may be afflicted the same way that I am. You see, for over a year now, sitting on my desk in a little envelope uh, tray, sits an envelope with an address or name on it that says Salvation Army. And over a year ago, I thought, I want to give some money to that organization. Donation, contribution, whatever you want to call it, because I know some people who work in it, and I know that it's doing a good job of meeting the needs of poor people here in Boise. Over a year now, it has sat there. And a lot of other things have come across my desk, but that envelope still sits there as a haunting reminder of what am I doing with some of the money that God has given to me. And then my mind immediately flashed to Christmas time. And the people who stand outside of Kmart, stores downtown, dutifully standing there ringing a bell. And I thought, Terry, what kind of person are you? I'm the kind who kind of goes, in the side door. <laughs> and I leisurely hang around in there, and when I think it's time to go out, I think, oh, no, I've got to go buy that pot. Oh, no. So I check my change to see, ah, nuts, there's some change in there. But I kind of cruise up to the door, and then I kind of blitz right by and think, ah, they don't really need it. Besides, I mean, a quarter, that's, that's worth at least one electronic game somewhere. <laughs> I mean, just a, just a quarter. But what God has been telling me this last week is that, Terry, your priorities are wrong. Your priorities are a little bit off. And not that we have to look to relief agencies like the Salvation Army to come to grips with the poor. Because in times like this, in a group this size, there are poor people right here in our body. People who've been out of work, not because they're lazy, not because they're irresponsible, but because of circumstances. And it's our responsibility as part of the body to help those people out. God is not going to remove the poor from us as hard as we pray. You know, whenever we come across a problem, we turn and we go, God, remove the problem. Then I won't have to deal with it. No, God has another plan. He leaves the problem there until we deal with it. So the poor that are amongst us in society and even in our body are not going to disappear. Because God is going to use them to test us to bring about maturity in our lives, to see how do we respond to these people. Do we smile on the outside and on the inside we say, you lazy, no good bum? Or do we begin to open up our hearts and say, God, 
you are gracious to me, I need to be gracious to other people. See, that's what Tabitha was able to do. In this sentence that Luke writes about Tabitha, it's a very telling sentence, verse 36. Two things about her that I think every one of us would like to be known for. The first thing he says is that she was a disciple. And in those times, that meant she loved the Lord. And the next thing he says is that she was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she sometimes did. Is that what it says? No, which she continually did. It was a way of life for her to do these things. That means she loved people. Two things. She loved God and she loved people. And before my life is through, I hope that that's what people will think of me. And I'm sure you hope that that's what people will think of you, that you loved God and that you loved people. Now, unfortunately for Tabitha, her life came to a premature ending, premature death, although I'm not so sure that any death is really premature. We tend to look at it that way, but I'm not sure that God looks at it that way. But fortunately for her, old Peter wasn't too far away. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So they sent two men off to Joppa, a short jaunt, about 12 miles. They were good marathoners, wouldn't take them long to run that 6K at all. They hustle down there and they tell Peter, Peter, we need you. I'm not even sure they knew exactly why they went to Peter. Perhaps they had heard the healing that he had performed on Aeneas. They thought, once again, maybe God can work. Maybe God can use Peter to raise up our friend Tabitha or to do something or even come and minister to us in our grief. So they tell Peter to come along and Peter comes with them when they come back to Joppa. And I think Peter is even wondering, now what, Lord, can I possibly do? Maybe some of you have been in those situations where you're saying, God, this person is grieving and needs to be ministered to. What can I possibly do? And so as he comes back to Joppa, he sees that people are gathered around Tabitha, that they're weeping, they're mourning the loss of this dear saint. And he's overcome with emotion. And I think he flashes back and he realizes, you know, Jesus had the same situation back in Matthew 9 with Jairus' daughter. And he was touched by the people and he responded to the need and by the power of God he was able to heal her and raise her up. So Peter sends them all out and he prays to God and God answers his prayer and heals her. Once again, I don't think the real miracle of this story is in Tabitha, is in Peter and what he did, though marvelous as we think it is. But look again at verse 42. And it became known all over Joppa, 
and many believed in the Lord. The miracle, again, is people responding to who Jesus Christ is. The fact that he's Lord. Last August, the miracle was not that Billy Graham would even consider coming to Boise, Idaho, small in population in comparison to other parts of the country and the world. The miracle was not that the pavilion was filled to the full each night. If you sat there, the miracle was that people responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the hundreds, they came down each evening, some for the first time and some for a rededication, but responding to who Jesus Christ is, the need they had in their own life of saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. I need to make him Lord of my own life. And that's upsetting to me, although I realize it's a miracle. It's upsetting to me because I think, again, who is this Jesus that's Lord of my life? But it's a miracle. Every time God shades away, shaves off the pride of my life, he peels it back to give me a little bit better glimpse of who he is as Lord. In all his life, death, resurrection, and divinity, who he is as Lord, and who I am as a person, graciously one of his children. That, to me, is a real miracle. But that God continually does that to me, continually shows me who he is and who I am. There's just one other thing I'd like to to point out, and that's as, as you look at these two stories, and you say, what in the world are these two stories about? Let them be a reminder to you of the awesome power of God power that was able to heal a person who'd been paralyzed for eight years. Power that was able to raise up a person who had died. Don't look at them and say, well, these are cute little New Testament stories that are true, and I believe they're true because I believe the Bible's true. That is true. But more than that, they need to be a reminder of who God is, the power that he possesses, and then take that a step further and say, that very power is available to me as an individual, as a believer. I have the Holy Spirit within me. And that very power that's within you and that's within me can set us free. That's all that God did. He set the paralytic free from his bondage. He set Tabitha free from death. And he can set us free from the same types of things. Free from worry free from deceit, free from selfishness, free from anger, free from materialism, free from worldliness. That's what the power of the gospel can do working inside us. Set us free from those things and make us able to be free to be righteous, to stand up for those things that are morally good and just, to do the loving thing towards other people, to genuinely love your husband or your wife or your children or your neighbor or your employer or your employee or whoever, to share your faith with them boldly, not to be ashamed to be a Christian. You have that very power inside of you. And we all need to come to grips with that 
that the power of God is awesome, but it's not abstract. It's not out there. It's right in here. And you can live each day the way God wants you to live it because he's given you the power to live it in the person of Jesus Christ. If you take nothing else from this morning in these two stories, take that with you and begin to think upon it. What does it mean for me to have the awesome power of God inside me? What things could I do now that I don't think or I didn't think that I could do before? Now, I told you at the very beginning that uh, before we came to dessert, we'd go through the main course. We've gone through the main course, so now comes dessert time when we answer the question, why are these two stories here? Well, I hope personally you see a little bit of why they're there, but uh, in another way, they're there because God wants to show us how he's working through Peter. Peter needs to be transformed. This story fits right between the exciting conversion of Paul and Peter going to see Cornelius. And Peter still has a few rough edges that need to be shaved off. And so God, by exposing him to the people at Lydda, this cosmopolitan area, and by exposing him to the people at Joppa, this major seaport, he's poking away at Peter's heart, telling him, Peter, there are people who need the gospel. People outside of Jerusalem, of Samaria, of Judea, who need the gospel. Prepare yourself to be able to be my messenger. That's what he's doing here. He's fulfilling Acts 1.8. This is just a description of the fulfillment of Acts 1.8 and the preparation of Peter to go on next week. And how is old pious Peter being prepared besides doing some healing? In verse 43 it says, And he came about, and it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner Simon. Joppa was still a major Jewish city, stronghold, and to be a tanner, a person who worked with dead animals, was unthinkable to a Jew. Totally unthinkable. But uh, because they were unclean, and they're dealing with dead animals, and you're always unclean if you're with a dead animal. God is taking Peter over that hurdle of saying, hey, it's okay for Simon to work with dead animals and it's okay for you to spend time with him. He's not unclean. So that's the dessert of the story. Stand with me as we close. Father, we have come together this morning to hear your word. Some of us have come very needy, Some of us have come thinking that we're fat. We ask that you would take your word through your spirit and work within each of us. Cause us to focus in on Tabitha, who was kind and charitable. Cause us to remember the awesome power that you possess displayed in your apostle Peter. That as we go out through this week, we might go thinking to do those things that we thought that we could not possibly do because we come to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.